Welcome to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson. Kirsten and her guests are here to help you stop struggling with your own self-acceptance and teach you how to love yourself unconditionally. Now, here's Kirsten. Welcome to Freedom for Humans, where we talk about the ways that we as humans can free ourselves from suffering by practicing unconditional love, acceptance, and compassion for ourselves. I'm Kirsten Johansson, your host. Well, how are you? I'm hot. <laughs> I just wanted to say hey to I know there are a lot of you that are experiencing hot temperatures that make you uncomfortable that inform what you do day to day and what you don't do and how judicious you have to be about going out or even using your car I was talking with a friend who um has I think more of a classic car and it, you know, she has to be careful about when she drives it. Um, and there's all kinds of other considerations when it's hot. <laughs> so for me, um, I know it's hot here uh, during the summer in Malta. I've been here during the summer before. And I know that it um, it tends to keep me inside more than I would like to be inside because just walking outside uh, sends me into a flop sweat. Yeah, I'm still figuring out my water situation, but today I have enough. That's a great concept for me. Uh, it keeps me from future tripping and thinking, well, what if? What if I don't have enough and what will happen? And uh, well, that just takes me into uh, a bunch of unhelpful worrying about things that might be. And I'm, I'm tired. I, I've been investing, I think, time, energy, resources, money, worrying, you know, uh, mental narratives into the what if of the future for most of my life, I think, uh, prior to this last few years when I just sort of blew it all up. So when I find myself uh, worried about the what ifs of the future, I do, you know, certainly there might be some things in there that need to be planned for, but if you've planned for them or you're in the process of planning for them, there's really, I find, no real value in worrying about them right now if right now is okay. And right now I have enough water. So that helps me because I can buy more food because uh, I, you know, I can buy what I can carry. Basically, I can buy what I can carry um, and get back from the store and then up my three flights. Uh, so yeah, today's grocery day. So I just wanted to say, hey. To all of you who are doing some version of what I'm doing to manage yourself through the heat that um, is being experienced across the U.S. in certain areas, but around the world, uh, we have international listeners on that show. So, hey to all the uh, the heat people. Okay, so last week I started a chat with you about menopause, and I introduced really the basis for me that was missing from my lengthy uh, journey with menopause that lasted, I guess it's still with me to some degree, but it is my, my normal now, but it lasted a good decade. Um, and what was missing for me during most of that time was a sense of acceptance of myself, of my current self. I was very much tied to what I used to be, what my body used to be, how it used to function, how I used to feel about myself, how it was perceived by men that I was with, 
and I got stuck wishing for that to come back and, and trying so hard to get it back. And I just, you know, I interacted with so many different practitioners and I wrote, let's see, I wrote them down so that I could try to describe to you all the people that I consulted with on my journey. And I feel like I'm forgetting some, but, but um, maybe that will come to me. So um, now I had, I had the cancer. I've mentioned that before. So mine was brought on by cancer treatment for anal cancer when I was 40 and I'm uh, creeping up on 53. So that'll give you an idea of how long I have been in the menopause journey. So I had a radiation oncologist. I had two medical oncologists. I had a case manager, a nurse case manager. I had a fertility specialist. I saw three specialty gynecologists. I saw a urogynecologist, a pelvic rehabilitation specialist, a psychiatric nurse practitioner and sex therapist, and a naturopath. And, um, I, there might be some other ones in there, but, but those were the main people that I saw and discussed my sexual health with because the radiation not only put me into menopause, but created a quite a lot of damage in my pelvic area, including, uh, to my vagina. And I was not prepared for any of that. So in my experience, they diagnosed the cancer and their job, you know, my, this is my perspective and my experience with, with uh, the practitioners that I worked with, their job was to kill that cancer and keep me alive. And the rest seemed ancillary to them. And I say that because they didn't bring it up. It only came up when I raised the question. And typically that, that was when something was already happening that was painful and shocking and unexpected. So, um, I just want to say, I guess, you know, I'm going to share with you from my lived experience. I'm not a medical practitioner. I'm not really a scientist of any kind. I'm sharing from my lived experience. So, you know, we all, I think, benefit from connecting with the right support, the right professional support, whether that be a medical provider or a therapist or a coach or whatever, you know, seems right for you. I found out, for instance, that I was going to lose my fertility when I read it in the fine print of the release that I was signing for radiation mapping, where they... um they map your cancer and uh, match it to the machine that's going to deliver the radiation. And they put uh, small points of tattoo on you to position you uh, so that the radiation hits the right places. So, you know, there I am, you know, I'm, I'm, my mind's blown by this entire thing. So I'm just walking through the steps and doing what I'm told is the next thing. And there I am getting radiation mapping and, um, the physician that was in that day, the radiation oncologist who didn't end up being my oncologist, but he was, I, I look up and there is the guy who I knew from treating my grandmother when she had lung cancer that spread to her brain. So I was familiar with this, with this radiation oncologist and, 
I was reading the release. I was reading the fine print of the release and I saw these words. Um, I saw infertility, but you know what I also saw in there? Sexual dysfunction. (laughs) I called him over and did one of the things that I did throughout my experience. What, what is the meaning of this? What? I'm sorry. What, what does this mean? What is going on here? You know, the cancer was in my anus and in my groin because it had spread to my inguinal uh, lymph node there. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what is going on with this sexual dysfunction? And I call him over and he says, oh, did no one speak to you about this? And I said, no, no one spoke to me about this. So, you know, for me, it was, it was this, um, kind of piecemeal journey of one piece of news after the other, either in the fine print or reading something in my chart that happened. I read something in my chart that no one had told me that was pretty awful. <laughs> it was pretty like life altering. And I did another, um, excuse me, can you tell me the meaning of this? And so, um, okay. So fast forward and I'm, I'm in treatment. I'm being radiated every day, five days a week and I'm getting chemotherapy. Um, I had a couple rounds of it. So I had an infused drug where they put the drug directly into a port that was in my chest. Uh, and then I had another drug that came from a pump that I wore around my waist. I called it the brick because it was about the size and weight of a brick. Um, I wore around my waist and then this tube came up from it and went into the port in my chest. And I had to wear that for 96 hours. So four days basically or so before it could be taken off. So I'm in that process. And as the radiation is, you know, radiation is momentous, meaning it builds, it builds over time. So when I started out, you know, yeah, maybe I felt a little bit of heat or whatever. And, you know, they did warn me that I was going to feel burned, like maybe like a bad sunburn, but when you're radiating your pelvic area, the the skin and the tissue and the in, internal organs and structures of that area are pretty delicate. So in my particular case, that cancer can't be treated twice in, in the same way. There are limited options if that initial course of treatment doesn't work because you can't re-radiate it. It's so damaging to the area. So I'm, I'm going through that and I, I'm, I remember this oh, clearly I'm sitting in bed because I was in bed a lot of the time during that time, I'm sitting in bed and I email my radiation oncologist and basically say, my vagina is on fire. Uh, I feel like I'm having like the worst yeast infection of my life or something like something's really wrong. And it was so distressing and upsetting to me. And he said, well, come in, you know, come on in, we'll take a look. And uh, I used to joke with him because he was this tall, younger, really stoic, uh, scientific kind of provider. If you have experience in the healthcare system, you've probably uh, come in contact with some providers who are just, they lean more science um, than maybe bedside manner. And so uh, he was kind of like that. And so I used to joke with him uh, to see if I could get a little chuckle out of him. And I remember that particular day, I said, could I get a, a small lead apron for my vagina, you know, the kind they put on you at the dentist's office when you get the x-rays. 
could I have a, a, a lead apron for my vagina, please? Because I feel like my vagina is collateral damage. My vagina didn't do anything. It's my butt. It's my anus that has the cancer. Uh, oh my God, what is going on? And, uh, yeah, so he, 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 he didn't really. <laughs> okay. I don't remember getting a laugh about that. He very seriously said, no, we're not going to be able. No, we can't. We're not going to be able to do that. And then he put one of those um, lights on his head, uh, you know, with the thing that on, on his forehead. So I'm on the table with in the stirrups, you know, knees up in the stirrups. And there he is with his uh, his spelunking gear, which is what I said. I said, oh, you got your spelunking gear on today, which finally I just I got just a teeny bit of a chuckle out of him. So um, let's not lose our senses of humor, everyone, if we can, whether it's cancer or menopause or some other uh, thing that comes our way in this life that is challenging and painful. Yeah. If you have butt cancer, I, I will tell you, uh, a sense of humor is is critical. So anyway, um, really, he just said, yeah, this is this is kind of what we expect. Now, it would have been... <laughs> It would have been nice to know that would have been nice to know that. Um, but that's how I found out most things when they were hurting, critical, scary. When I asked a lot of questions, that's when I got the information that I needed. So um, that's really when I became first aware that there was going to be like something is something is up here. And so as I continued to get the radiation and got more and more burned, it was, it was everywhere. It was, it was everywhere. It wasn't just where the cancer was. And, um, so, you know, I, I had a pretty immediate and extreme result because of that treatment. And what it, what I found over the years is that all of the methods and techniques that I used to kind of rehab, if you will, uh, to rehab my vagina and also to re regain, I was thinking regain, but really recreate my sexual health and sexual life. I've ended up sharing with a broad uh, group of women who didn't necessarily have my same experience, but had similar outcomes, either because of medical treatment, or just simply because of menopause and not knowing that there were methods to do some things that are preventive, that will help you maintain um, the health and the, the health of your vagina so that you can still have pleasure, whether you're having sex with another person, or you're just uh, managing your own sexual life. So that's kind of what I thought I might share with you today is all those little things that I learned along the way. So we'll talk quite a bit about vaginas, but also I'm going to touch on libido and um, just sexual health, sexual practices, and having conversations about your body and about sex with an established partner, but also potentially with a new partner. A word about libido, and um, because that's one of the things that gets in the way, if you will, of continuing to to have an active 
sexual life when you're used to having libido. Uh, and what I mean by that, I'm specifically talking about spontaneous libido. There's different kinds of, of arousal. And when we're younger, um, when we're not in menopause, when we're not under stress, when we're not having medical treatment, many of us, not all of us, but many of us have spontaneous libido. Maybe we see something or hear something or have an interaction with somebody that, you know, causes that to bubble up in us, or maybe not. Maybe it just, you know, for me, it just always was there. Um, I was game, uh, you know, to explore my sexuality from a pretty young age. I was excited about it. I wanted to like discover it and get into it and see what we could do with it. So, you know, I was somebody who, for whom it always bubbled along though that's related to our hormones. And so when I was treated, my hormones were ultimately, they dropped to pretty much nothing. When we did test my estrogen levels, they came back below five. So the lowest reading, like not even a reading, just a reading that was below the lowest level. And so it, it tells me that there's really not, there's not much in there and there hasn't been much in there for a number of years. And so, you know, estrogen, testosterone, those are the things that typically kind of fuel our spontaneous libido. And sometimes people can believe that there's something wrong with them, that they no longer have spontaneous libido or without spontaneous libido that they're not going to have sex anymore, or it doesn't make sense to have sex anymore. But there is also something called reactive libido. And so for me, it was a transition. And, you know, I said last week, I won't go into it a ton because I could spend all hour on it and I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, about accepting, accepting what is not what was and not trying to get back what was because that just makes what is the you that you are now, the body that you have now seem as though they're not good enough or not enough. And that right there, uh, oh boy, that, that robs so much joy and, and ultimately, um, is d- depressing and limiting and painful and creates suffering. So I, I was able to eventually just accept I don't really have spontaneous libido. I don't have the hormones for that. That's, that is the nature of transitioning and, and for many of us of transitioning into menopause. But reactive libido is great. That just means that maybe you use something to, um, get yourself going, uh, to become aroused. And maybe there's things you like to watch or, or think about, but it also might be that you really need direct physical stimulation, either that you provide for yourself or that you have with a partner. And it might take a bit more time for you to build a level of arousal that makes you then want to move into having sex of some kind. And so, you know, I'm talking about intimacy, touching, talking, affection, foreplay that maybe isn't specifically genital. It can be important to have levels of foreplay that don't go directly to your, uh, 
your crotch, <laughs> if you will, at least as a woman. Uh, sometimes we just are like, man, could we leave that alone uh, for, for a while while we kind of explore some other things? Or if your partner is a man, sometimes um, the way I would characterize it is, you know, a hard penis, an erect penis can kind of suck all the air out of the room. It can sort of stand at attention and demand to be paid attention to and remedied. And it can bring with it a, a, a certain type of urgency. And um, I have to tell you that letting go of that, letting go of the idea that, okay, we got to hurry up and get to this erect penis uh, was very freeing to me. And it didn't really happen until I was by myself for a while and I could get some perspective. And now with a different partner, I just don't feel the same sense of urgency. And even when the partner has some urgency around it, I'm able to just say, I'm not ready. Um, it doesn't take much for me to just say, I'm not ready. I need more of this, or I need more of that, or I need more kissing or holding, or I need to talk for a while. Um, that's Those are things that I would not have felt I wouldn't have done before because I was just too self-denying. I was too focused on what the other person needed to ask for what I needed and not only to ask for it, but to then not move forward if I'm not getting it. Because if I'm not getting it and I'm not aroused enough or interested enough in what's going on and my body is not ready I don't want to have sex and the level of pain, if you are experiencing some pain, I'm going to get into uh, pain with intercourse and, and specifically how to care for your vagina to reduce that or, or even potentially eliminate it. But one of the most important ways of getting there is to make sure that you're aroused because um, the vagina, when you're aroused, it, uh, and particularly when you reach or are in the process of reaching orgasm, it does what's called tenting. And it does that to allow, um, penetration with a penis or a sex toy or fingers or whatever is going in there more, more, more comfortable. That's, uh, that's the nature of a woman's body. So, um, you know, be kind to yourself about the ways in which you are now aroused and be open to different, different ways of achieving that and exploring that and begin to have conversations with your partner. Now, all of that is easy for me to say. And it's not easy to do. So I just want to acknowledge that I've, I've, I, again, I have all of this lived experience and I had a difficult time doing that because I wasn't able to center myself. Okay. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk more about how to care for your vagina so that you can have um, the pleasurable sexual life that you desire. You're listening to Freedom for Humans. And we will be right back.
Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at GiraffeTangoOctopus.com. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. to Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten, your host. Okay, so I mentioned um, at the very end of last week's show that when you are going through, when you're perimenopausal, menopausal, or you've had some medical treatment that have impacted your sexual life and particularly your vagina, chances are you're going to need some lubricant. And I did go through this, you know, I was relatively young, I guess, you know, I was 40 when all this occurred. And I did go through this time where it felt like I was broken in some way, like I shouldn't need lubricant. And I remember as a, as a younger woman before all of this happened, that I did have some perception that needing lubricant was somehow uh, an old lady thing, or that maybe that meant that you weren't really into your partner or a lot of mistaken beliefs about that, that were more about the image of myself, perhaps uh, as a lover or the way that I wanted to appear as a lover. Or in my case, I really didn't want to have any needs (laughs) Um, I just didn't want to have any needs, uh, which is, yeah, that's a major problem. So now I have lots of needs (laughs) and I just say what they are and see what happens, Uh, see whether they get met or not, or whether I need to reiterate them, et cetera. So in terms of menopause, though, listen, you're going to need some lubricant. And um, I do like a natural oil. You have to be careful with oils when you're using condoms or um, silicone, sex toys, things like that. So do pay some attention to, you know, your own health and safety and what you're putting in there and whether or not something that's not water-based can degrade the materials of the sex toy that you're using. Uh, For instance, in my case, 
Um, I have a history. I want to just quickly talk to you about this because I didn't discover the solution until I was 49 years old. I have a yeast sensitivity. I've had it since I was a teenager. And so I'm really um, very susceptible to symptoms of a yeast infection when there's no yeast to culture. So I've had just a struggle with my medical providers over the years, believing me, and I've taken prophylactic doses of the 150 fluconazole a week, but it wasn't enough for me. And I found I was always having to fight for it um, and try to convince the doctors that I knew what I was talking about until I finally found the lovely and wonderful Dr. Eschenbach, who is now retired, but uh, his work lives on. Uh, University of Washington Women's Health. And there is a, there's a pretty hard, a simple, harmless protocol, um, of 400 milligrams of fluconazole a week. You take a 200 milligram fluconazole twice a week. It's the only remaining medication that I'm on besides vaginal estradiol cream, which I do want to mention too, because that has been super important to me. But staying on that protocol for the last four years, I don't think I've had one flare or infection. I have to take good care of myself and my vaginal health um, when I'm having sex with a partner. But aside from that, the struggle that I had almost my entire life, I no longer have. So if you're somebody who struggles with that, there is a protocol. It's, it's researched. It's published. I remember asking him, so this is accessible? Like, this is easy to know about? Like, yes. He said, I said, why don't, I've seen so many doctors over the years. Why doesn't anybody know about this? And he just shook his head. He said, I don't know. I don't know. But that's been a a game changer for me. So um, I do want to mention that to you because if you're, if you're trying to have a sexual life, and you're working through sexual health issues, and you're fighting recurrent yeast infections as I was, boy, it is exhausting and dispiriting, and it can make you throw your hands up. So just as I mentioned before, you know, if, if a person feels like giving up because they don't have spontaneous libido, it can take you to a place where when you do decide that you would like to have sex again, it can be difficult and painful because for women, um, I, I think this might also be a, a bit true for men, but I'm going to speak more to what I know about here. It can be use it or lose it in terms of your sexual health, well-being, ability to reach an orgasm, ability to become aroused and ability to have intercourse, have penetrative sex without uh, discomfort. Now, I only found that out by my experience in speaking to all of those practitioners. There were a number of them that used that terminology with me. Yes, it can be use it or lose it. And I'm thinking, why doesn't anybody tell us that? I kind of know the answer to that. Women, you know, women are not valued, uh, in the way that, um, men are, you know, the research doesn't happen around us in the same way that research happens around men. And then when you, you get to our sexual well-being and our sexual health, and 
And particularly when it isn't necessarily tied to reproduction, um, there's not a lot of care and concern that goes into that. And so, you know, we're, if we don't know, we can't help each other. We can't pass this knowledge along to each other. And so the number of times that I've had conversations with women over the years where I've said, if you want to be able to put something in your vagina at some point, be sure you put something in your vagina now. They're all, almost always surprised uh, about that. Um, I think that the, the thinking or the belief is it doesn't matter how long I go without having sex, without having a penetrative sex or without having an orgasm. When I get ready to want that again, it will be there for me. Um, that is not always the case. It can be brought back. You can generally get it back, um, but it won't necessarily be uh, within reach right away if you haven't been practicing. One of the most helpful things that I did in, in the beginning of that journey and that I've used over the years are vaginal dilators. They typically come in a set and the smallest one is about the size of a pinky. And then they go usually all the way up to what's called extra large. Uh, they come in a variety of different materials, um, solid, some of them are hollow. I am going to suggest that if you are someone who, you know, is, is, has been in menopause a while, has been abstinent from penetrative sex for a while, you know that you have pain uh, when you try to put something in that you might try uh, the solid dilators that they're a rigid uh, kind of um, they're, they're, they can be sterilized. They're, they're a solid material. And what makes them different from a sex toy is often sex toys have some flexibility to them. Um, and so what's great about a dilator is that first you can start with the smallest size or the size that doesn't cause you any discomfort. And you, when you put it in, you're doing a couple of things. So interestingly, when I first started using the dilators, um, I, again, I had to, I had to kind of ask for them and research them myself and all that stuff. And then, you know, my lovely specialty gynecologist, he really didn't have the full set of knowledge about what to do with them. He kind of said, you know, push it in to keep your, um, to keep the depth from collapsing in on itself. So that was what he had seen in a prior patient that the depth of her vagina had collapsed. And so she couldn't insert anything really in there and she couldn't have intercourse with her husband, which is what she wanted. And so, okay. I mean that, yes. Okay. So yes, that is a thing. So you can put it in and sort of push, um, hmm, gently, but firmly, I would say, um, toward the back of your vagina so that, um, you do maintain some depth and remember the vagina is a muscle. And one of the things that I've also suggested to people, because this process of dilating your vagina can feel not at all pleasant. Uh, there is some discomfort to it and it can feel kind of clinical and it can feel just like something you don't want to do. Uh, I've heard that quite a bit. And so um, there's a couple things that I would suggest around that. One of the things that has helped me is to not think about trying to 
make my vagina be able to accommodate another person's anatomy. So I had to separate the, the my health and well-being and the health and well-being of my vagina from its usefulness to a partner because it's mine. It's mine and it belongs to me. Okay. Your vagina belongs to you, whether you choose to share it and with whom you to choose to share it is also completely up to you and is an act of, it may not be an act of love. Maybe you're hooking up, you don't love the person. That's totally cool. But in my estimation, it's always an act of generosity to share yourself with somebody. And as a woman to share your vagina and allow somebody to put their body parts inside of you is, is an act of trust and an act of generosity. And so it's, but it's not really about that. It's really yours and it belongs to you and it's a muscle. So um, now the outside, the soft tissue on the outside is kind of another matter. Um, I'm going to stick for right now with the, the muscular piece of this. Um, and so when you are in menopause and your hormones change, the pliability, the flexibility of that muscle begins to diminish because estrogen is one of the things that keeps it pliable and flexible and helps it to expand and contract without pain. And so it can begin to atrophy like any other muscle that is not getting used. And so you can think about it in the same way that you do if you go to the gym or you do yoga or you do certain things to keep your core strong so that you can get up and down and get up from the floor. This is a part of your body um, that, you know, not only is meant to bring you some pleasure, but also when it's not feeling well, it really does impact you in the same way as any other of your body parts, not feeling well, it can be quite distracting and um, disconcerting. So, um, so do center yourself and some compassion for yourself and separate it from whether or not you're going to be able to satisfy a partner. For me, that was just, I wasn't able to do that until I was away from, from that partner. So um, there's a couple of things that you can do with the dilator beyond just pushing it in to ensure that you're maintaining some depth. Um, you, you kind of um, can imagine that your vagina is a clock and when you've put the dilator in, you can, you're, you're going to hold on to it. It's long enough that you'll be able to hold on to the end of it with your hand. They also make some that come with a little detachable handle. Um, if you, if I'm pretty flexible, <laughs> but if you're not so flexible and, um, you just need more of something to hang on to, you can look for the kind that have a handle to them. Um, and you pull the dilator. So you're pulling the end that you're hanging on to on the outside. You're pulling it up towards 12 o'clock. And as you're doing that, the, the rounded end that is toward the back of your vagina is then being pushed in the opposite direction. So what that's doing is it's allowing you to gently stretch the introitus. So that would be the entrance of your vagina, all the soft tissue, you know, there's the vulva, there's the labia, and then there's the entry with the soft tissue that 
can result if you're, you know, uh, in menopause and after medical treatment in a phenomenon that I, that needed no explanation when it was said to me, um, it was the psychiatric nurse practitioner actually, who said, do you have burning ring of fire? And I remember just saying, yes, yes. And I felt so relieved that somebody knew what it was, that there was a name for it and that that name needed no further explanation. So what it means is the entrance of your vagina is mostly soft tissue and there's a lot of nerve endings, far more than what you have in the musculature of the inside of the vagina. Um, and ooh, if you have burning ring of fire, you know it. And what that means is that when you go to insert something in, it feels to me what the best way that I had of describing it was it felt like razor blades lit on fire. That's what it felt like for me to insert something, particularly to insert something that was um, not not uh, the proper size for what I could handle at that time. So you may have some burning in which case, you know, try to size down in the beginning so that you're using a dilator that doesn't hurt you. Because once you experience uh, pelvic pain, vaginal pain, it can create uh, an avoidance. And so you will avoid dilating. You will avoid masturbating. Um, if that includes putting something inside, you will avoid having uh, penetrative sex. You might avoid having sex altogether if you feel as though penetrative sex is the be all end all or with your, or you're with a partner who is disappointed if penetrative sex doesn't happen. So do care for the level of, of pain that you're experiencing and try to reduce it. Um, at least so that, you know, I kind of differentiate between discomfort and pain. We want to reduce most of it if we can. A little bit of discomfort is probably going to be part of it, um, but try not to be in pain. So don't don't rush yourself or uh, go bigger than you really want to because you want to speed it up. It's not really a <laughs> it's not really a process you can speed up. In fact, um, if you're not having regular intercourse, it, using dilators regularly is a way to sustain your vaginal health, so that when you do want to have penetrative sex, you can do that. Uh, without stress and pain. So it's not really a one and done kind of thing. Um, I remember communicating with some other anal cancer survivors and one of them, you know, I had a lot of questions and it was almost all, almost all of my questions were, were sexual. Um, and one of the women said, there is no sex without pain. That is just the way it is. And I, I, I did not accept that. I did not accept that. I, it scared me and upset me. And I thought, well, I know I'm not accepting that. Um, and so I have found, <laughs> finally, uh, I have found um, penetrative sex without pain, thankfully, because um, it's not the be all end all for me, um, but I do enjoy it and enjoy being able to have it when I want to. So that is not my story. That was that person's story. That's not my story. And that's not the story that I, that I want, um, in terms of my sexual life. So you're pulling the dilator up towards 12 o'clock. And that means that the end, the rounded end of the dilator that is inside of you is pushing 
um, kind of on the wall towards the six o'clock wall of your vagina. And you just go around the clock, you know, 12, one, two, and so on. And what that does is it gently stretches the outside, the introitus, um, part, partly the, the vestibule, <laughs> as my uh, lovely gynecologist would say, I joked with him and called it the foyer. Uh, the introitus, the vestibule, that soft tissue, but you're also then um, stretching the muscle on the inside. So in addition to separating this, caring for your vagina from being able to accommodate a partner, that's really important just to care for yourself so that when you get ready to have sex with a partner, you're able to communicate your needs stop if something hurts um, and kind of just, okay, rewind. Okay. We tried that. Ouch. That's that, that doesn't feel good to me. Um, Don't gut it out. I gut it out years, years and years and years of pain. And I was with a partner who had um, requirements. I'm going to call them requirements because that's, that's what they were. They, they were pretty inflexible requirements about frequency, et cetera. And so I got it out a ton of pain and it created uh, a lot of pelvic trauma, a lot of emotional trauma. And even though I continued to go through the motions physically inside, I was very avoidant and I felt dehumanized and objectified. And like, I wasn't, I wasn't even being viewed or treated as a whole human. And it was up to me. It was up to me to, to stop that because the partner was not going to change that there was not going to be anything different really that came from that partner, even though I was wishing and hoping, and sometimes I would break down and I would plead. It wasn't up to that person, you know, uh, I was shown over and over again, um, that not much was going to change there. So, um, it really was up to me to set clear boundaries and to say, no, um, stop, or I'm not you know, that doesn't feel good, or I don't want to continue to do this. And so um, by separating yourself from this idea that you're only valuable, if you can accommodate your partner, you're only worthy, if you can accommodate your partner, it will hopefully help you to be able to center yourself when you're in the middle of having a sexual encounter, um, because it can be difficult uh, for, for us to communicate sometimes when we're in the middle. Um, the other thing that is very helpful when you are using dilators, if you're finding it to be um, kind of unpleasant, whether that be physical, uh, physically unpleasant or just emotionally unpleasant, um, you can watch TV while you do it. Um, that's kind of helpful just to have something going on that um, you're not, you know, your brain isn't all the way. Uh, in your vagina, you're just kind of doing, you know, like on a tread, you know, like kind of how you do when you're on a treadmill. Um, and then also what is really helpful. And I mentioned this a bit before with the, when I mentioned the vaginal tenting, um, is to masturbate. And if you, uh, you know, you don't have to bring yourself all the way to orgasm if that, um, tends to be challenging for you. We don't want to introduce another frustrating challenge. However, if you are able to become aroused 
it will be much easier to do though that exercise that I described. There are other exercises. I'm just going to tell you about that one today. Um, but it will be much easier to do that exercise with the dilator if you're aroused. And if you can have an orgasm or more than one, all the better. Because you are sort of caring for practicing a variety of sexual um, experiences that you want to continue to have. So in this scenario, you want to continue to have it. So just ask yourself that, is this for me? Is this for me? Um, if it's not for you, mm, if it's not for you, it's not for you. I'm going to kind of leave it at that. Um, I know that's a little bit of a kind of esoteric concept, but um, it really does need to be for you because it's not this, this process is not easy. And while we're going through it, we're experiencing ourselves in a new way. And we are in many ways needing to let go of the person that we were in this area that we've become used to that we may have valued in a way that is different from, oh, I'm not sure about this body and this vagina and this person who isn't so interested in sex and doesn't feel very sexual um, and isn't um, maybe so comfortable with uh, their vagina anymore. Um, so, um, we're, we're coming, uh, to the end and I want to give you a couple of other quick tips. One I, I kind of mentioned already, but I didn't, I wasn't specific, um, vaginal estradiol cream. It just, it provides some localized estrogen to the vagina. There are some warnings. And, um, if you have an estrogen sensitive cancer or something like that, you'll want to, you know, of course speak with it's it's a prescription based. So you'll want to speak with your provider. For me, it was incredibly helpful and it was helpful in a different way than it's typically prescribed. It's often prescribed uh, with a plunger and you put quite a bit of it into the plunger and put that in the vagina a couple times a week. But the urogynecologist that I saw, uh, she said, don't do that. Don't do that. She, she used her finger and she used the first section, you know, the, just the first section of your index finger. And she said, put this amount, squeeze this amount, this first section of your finger and put that in every day, a little bit every day. Now, when I did that, I saw a change almost immediately. Um, and so I was kind of fascinated uh, by the fact that many of my doctors that I've seen over the years who had prescribed that they, they didn't know that. And even when I introduced that information to them, they kind of poo pooed it um, and thought, well, no, okay. Well, it was sort of like, well, okay. If you think that's working better, that's fine. But this is really the way that it's meant to be used. Um, so I'm going to recommend to you a little bit every day because that's going to more mirror what would happen if your body was producing estrogen and that estrogen was um, helping to keep your vaginal muscle uh, pliable and a little bit more uh, lubricated and to hold off the atrophy. 
um, that I uh, talked about before. And lastly, belly breathe. So I talk about belly breathing a lot. One of the people that I saw, the pelvic rehabilitation specialist recommended belly breathing. And she said, it's one of the most effective ways to um, reduce pain with sex and to care for the health of your vagina and to care for your sexual health. And I thought, really breathing, breathing into your belly. Okay. I, it is absolutely true. So if you don't yet have a belly breathing practice that you have worked into either a meditation or a yoga practice, or perhaps, um, you just do it multiple times a day. I just do it multiple times a day. I do it in bed. I do it when I'm working. I do it in all kinds of places. Um, it is a a wonderful health practice. And if you are in menopause, um, it, it will likely help you. Um, but it does need to be practiced consistently. So in all of the things that I'm talking about, consistency is key so that when you are having sex of any type, you can trust your body and you can relax and you can know what feels good to you and what doesn't. And you can communicate that. Um, communication with a partner is sort of a separate topic, I think. Um, cause it's difficult. It can be difficult and challenging. And particularly if maybe you're with a partner that, um, is not receptive or isn't able to communicate with you. Um, but I think we can talk about that separately. So, um, that's all we have time for today. I do want to just let you know where to find me uh, and tell you that I am happy to have a conversation with you. Um, you know, the first session that I have with anybody is always free. And if you just want to have a conversation about uh, what you're experiencing with menopause um, or your sexual health, I'm very happy to use that session uh, to do that. So you can find me at giraffetangooctopus.com across social media at GTO coaching. Um, I'm on TikTok um, at coach Kirsten. And really you can just email me directly at coach KJ at giraffetangooctopus.com. Um, I hope you have enjoyed the show and you've heard something helpful. Uh, please, if you like the show, let your friends know you can do all the things like, and follow and, um, tell people about it. If you have a a product or a service, um, and you would like us to have a sponsorship uh, relationship, that would be awesome. That will help us to continue to make the show. And, uh, I'm going to wish you a wonderful week. Love yourself, free yourself, be yourself, and dance your own tango. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope we have helped you learn to love yourself unconditionally and accept and celebrate everything that makes you, you. Tune in next Wednesday for another episode. And in the meantime, dance your own tango.